Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Dave, that so threw me off. I've been Sorry. saying, I mean, I'm sure I've interviewed him. Wait. <laughs> I mean, I've interviewed Garage. him. Garage. Not, hold on. I'm on YouTube. Bucket or bouquet. And there's I mean. like... Nigel Farage. <laughs> See, am I saying I'm on, on YouTube? Nigel Farage. Nothing is straightforward about Nigel. Not even his name. Farage. Farage. Nigel Farage. Are you sure Allegra said that? Wow. That's what he told Allegra personally. He said it rhymes with garage. Yeah, but if you're American, it's garage. Garage. (laughs) (laughs) It's a minefield. I'm David Merritt. And I'm Francine Lacqua. And this is In the City, Bloomberg's podcast connecting you to the stories and the voices at the heart of the City of London. Now, Dave, this week you were trying to make me pronounce Nigel Farage in a different way. Well, no, in the correct way. Look, Francine, I know we don't <laughs> disagree <laughs> very often, correct. but on this, I'm, a pla- I'm afraid you're playing wrong. Uh, it is apparently, <laughs> it rhymes with garage, which is pronounced garage and not Garage, like I do, I pronounce it garage. Yes, I'm sorry, we, we're the Americans. We, I think we're going to have to agree to disagree on this one. But Ni- Nigel has been on our minds, hasn't he? Because you know, he turns out he is producing. Um, it, we we mustn't call it investment advice, but investment insights. So our very own Harry Wilson tracked the numbers, crunched the data in true Bloomberg fashion over the summer. And he's going to join us to talk through the rather um, unfavorable results. And, you know, Brexit has been, I'm afraid, on my mind again this week, uh, Francine. I, there was a poll that really caught my eye that showed that the public really are moving away from that decision in 2016. It seems like many more people now regret that vote. But what's really struck me is that the politicians are kind of behind the public on this one. No one is coming out and saying uh, that Brexit has been a bad idea, at least no one from the main parties. So this week we revisit Brexit in our conversation with Jared Lyons. He's a senior fellow at Policy Exchange. And he's been one of the most prominent pro-Brexit voices right from the beginning. Right. He has had a ringside seat, I think it's fair to say, since, you know, that that seismic vote in 2016, both with Boris Johnson, but then, of course, over the summer with the dramatic um, implosion of the Truss administration. And now, of course, pivoting to the new administration under Rishi Sunak. We have a pro, Dave. A pro with us here in the podcast studio. A a, a podcast pro, right? (laughs) I've never been described as that before. There you go. This is the first (laughs) time. I'm pleased to quote you as calling me a podcast pro. We're here with Jared Lyons, a very well-known economist. But you have a podcast you do with your daughter, who's a comedian. So we have started a podcast called What the Hell is Economics? We've recorded <laughs> three so far. The third one... So, But it's comedy. Is it comedy or economics or both? It's basically listenable to. You can listen. Oh, right. Listenable. Accessible. Relatable. Access- relatable, that. that's right. Relatable so it's economics. economics and comedy With together. some jokes. So, yes. Yeah. yeah, What the hell is economics right now in the UK? I mean, I feel like we've been, you know, slapped around a bit in the last six months. Yeah, just the last six months. That's, yeah, it's been yes, years, right? Yeah. We've had a political crisis probably since the middle of 2016, but yes. The UK, actually, the last few months, uh, it's a classic case of identifying the right problem, 
but not necessarily coming up with the right solution. So the problem has been since 2008, a lack of economic growth, not a UK specific problem, Western European problem. So at least people now, I think, recognise the problem, but there's clearly a long way to go to address it. And so, yes, so the right diagnosis, structural slow growth, and you were an advocate over the summer for for the radical solution, right? To 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 supercharge the economy a little bit, you know, to, to, to maybe to cut tax. But it all went horribly wrong. Can you, can you describe why it went wrong and what your position on is on? Yeah, it? well, I was Penny Morden's economic advisor, and so she unfortunately didn't make the final two, um, or in terms of the Conservative leadership race. But my policy proposal was that we needed a three arrow approach. Um, indeed, regardless of who's in power, one arrow is monetary and financial stability, um, reducing inflation and making the city competitive competitive not only for its own sake but to help the rest of the UK economy. Second arrow is using fiscal policy in a very proactive way, Keynesian-like, but at the same time reducing debt to GDP over time. And the third arrow was a whole supply-side agenda, all the I's as I called it, investment, innovation, infrastructure, incentives, and if you get all those right, then inequality is reduced. So basically three arrows, comprehensive, avoiding the dash for growth, very much longer term, supply side, investment driven, but using fiscal policy and not, as we've done since 2008, rely on monetary policies, the only shock absorber for the economy. Jared, you're one of the also city grandees that was for Brexit right from the very beginning. Have we gotten anything out of Brexit? Yeah, well, the UK has very much uh, positioned itself outside EU. Um, Brexit is a political process. I think it's important to differentiate between an event and a process in the sense that the event happened, but to actually make Brexit work both economically and financially is not just leaving the EU. It's what you do when you have left. And so in terms of looking at... Why don't we have that? Well, I would say partly because from 2016 to 2019, we had a political crisis. And since then, attention has not really focused on addressing the issue. And it comes back to David's original question as well about what we need to do to actually get growth up in the UK. In fact, both of these issues should come together. It's about what's the challenge? What do we need to do? And what do we have at our disposal now post leaving the EU to actually make that work and achievable? So do you you still think it's a little bit too soon then to kind of past judgment on Brexit. I mean, there is a narrative now that, well, some of the effects were, you know, there was clouded by COVID. We've had a pandemic, you know, it wasn't really clear to see. There is a bit more of a consensus, it feels to me anyway, amongst economists, commentators, the myths are clearing, the numbers are in, Brexit's been bad for the British economy. Do you think it's too soon to say that? Well, Brexit should be a big positive for the UK economy. And it's about using the ability to actually make the most of repositioning the UK in a changing and growing global economy. But coming back to your question, David, if you actually look at the comparison between, say, Britain and the three major economies on the continent who, like the UK, are in the G7, so Germany, France and Italy, since June 2016, on the major economic indicators, growth, unemployment, even inflation, the UK is very much in the middle of the pack. If we take growth since 2016, the UK has grown at a faster rate than Italy, cumulatively, grown at a faster rate than Germany since 2016, not as fast as France no. on unemployment. Our but unemployment it, rate is half the year it was average. In a different trajectory, so- right? I mean, it was in different, if you look at Italy five years ago and the UK five years ago, it's, it's, 
it's difficult to compare because Italy was doing much worse and it and and the UK at the time was doing so much better. So comparatively, the UK is losing more. Not really. Well, since 2008, Western Europe, basically, regardless which country you really look at, has been in pretty much the same boat, same position. When we look at the world economy, let's say when we joined the EU back in 1973, then we're then nine countries in it. At that time, the EU accounted for about 26% of the world. When we left, just after we left in 2016, or indeed if you took 2019, if you wanted, um, the remaining 27 countries accounted for roughly 20% of the world economy. If you take even the most credible projections for the world economy, um, 20, 25 years' time, the EU then will be less than one-tenth, less than the size of India. So the issue is that clearly the UK needs to have a sensible relationship with the EU, but we need to reposition ourselves globally and at the same time make sure that we address the domestic challenges that are clearly very apparent. In coming back to David's point, when I advocated leaving the EU, my point was, look, quite frankly, this cannot be the only economic issue of the day where all the arguments are on one side. And as I actually, I would say, correctly pointed out at the time, there were arguments both for and against. In terms of the whole basis, once we decided politically to leave, the issue about leaving was that, as I said at the time, you can't leave something that you've been in for over 40 years and expect it to be easy to leave. Um, so I called it a Nike swoosh in terms of its impact, the immediate impact in terms of the negative side, would be very apparent. But coming back to the earlier question from Francine, it's not just the political event, it's actually what you do when you've left. And so the whole issue is how we reposition yeah. ourselves. And that's very important for where we are sitting right? now. I mean, what happened that it was so difficult to, you know, to, to find something that would kickstart this economy? Was it timing? Was it just issues that were badly thought out? Why it went wrong was I don't think they took on board the febrile state of the markets, how to handle the markets, and what they seemed to advocate at the end was interpreted as a dash for growth rather than what was needed, which was a sustained supply-side-driven, sort of investment-driven growth agenda. But Jared, like, why, why were we not able, under Conservative governments, all pro-Brexit, to really capture what was needed? And, you know, why has it been so difficult? And if you're an outside investor, how would you look into the UK right now? Yeah, well, I am i don't sit inside the tent, so I've not been advising um, the governments since 2016. Uh, but the political crisis from 2016 to the end of 2019 really did not help. It didn't help anyone. Um, also, we've then had COVID since, but we, so we up now until are... the election of Boris Johnson, up until his landslide, mm. when then when he you know got Brexit done. So, uh, did things improve at that point? Because it's we've still been we've been in a, just a different political crisis ever since, haven't we? I mean, it's kind of the, which which are all still really can be dated back to Brexit, isn't it? I mean, it's never really ended. The Brexit referendum was a political process but is a political process that actually allows you to then start to drive the economic and financial agenda you can't leave something you've been in for 40 odd years and expect it to be easy the transition agreement or whatever you want to call uh, the different aspects of it we have the relationship with northern ireland but we the new trade arrangement with the eu clearly uh, that could have gone in a different direction so it's possible to construct different scenarios but the point is it's about repositioning the UK. And as I was mentioning earlier, we've done relatively well on a whole host of the measures. But I would actually say um, I didn't, don't think the opportunity has been seized because I think the city is probably the in most interesting area that we can focus on from here. How would you kickstart the City of London today? For a financial centre 
to be competitive, it really needs three key characteristics or three key factors all coming together. One is its inherent characteristics. Second is the regulatory environment. And the third, it needs to be the place that customers want to do business. And that's a function of many things, including the depth and breadth of markets. So ensure that your inherent characteristics are secure, control the controllables in some respects. Second, ensure that your regulatory agenda fits what you're trying to do. And third, it's about bringing that together alongside the need for customers to see you as an attractive place to do business in. The city um, is still pretty well placed. The ZGN survey shows we're the second most competitive globally, but we shouldn't underestimate the continued challenge from New York and from Asian economies. But we've seen other data since 2016 or 2019, which very much are in line with what one would have expected in terms of jobs, in terms of trading, and in terms of other activity. Some firms, depending on their business model, have had to adjust, whether it's moving some things from London to Dublin, London to Luxembourg or wherever. That's also reflected in the jobs. But at the same time, the UK has remained pretty competitive in the number of areas. So it's very much up for grabs what we do from here. The important thing is not to be complacent. I'm interested by what you say about this serving of the rest of the country. We don't hear that very much when it comes to discussion about the city as a financial powerhouse. You know, like it's all about the, you know, how much money can be generated here for the banks, not how is the city the financing engine for businesses across the country. That's a different sort of agenda. But how can the city really serve that function? What needs to change? Okay, there's a whole host of different aspects here. But the domestic agenda can be seen coming back to early point I mentioned about trying to address those or filling those gaps in in terms of patient capital and the funding gap facing small firms. Is that a bank? Is that, I mean, a bank fills in usually, you know, the funding to small and medium-sized enterprises. Does it have to be the whole city of London? Yeah, I, I thought I would try and avoid mentioning the Macmillan gap today because I, <laughs> I mentioned it too much recently. But it was mentioned. Is, is this podcast more fun than yours? Because <laughs> yeah, the Macmillan gap was first in 19, identified in 1931, which was that banks were not servicing the needs of small firms. But coming back to your question, Francine, we've moved on from banks. But banks play a part in that. If you actually look at the Basel um, capital requirements, it's quite remarkable how banks, and it's true not just in Britain, obviously, it's international, are incentivized to do t two things, really, uh, to buy government debt, zero capital, or to lend to the property sector. And they do that, particularly in the UK, where property prices, unfortunately, have moved so high relative to people's earnings and incomes. But the real issue it's not just with banks, it's with um, the whole financial sector about how it provides finance to small firms. Post-Brexit, um, so to speak, when Rishi Sunak was Chancellor, he very much was aligned with the idea of regional centres becoming attractive to onshore back office and other services. And City UK, where I used to be on the board many years ago, um, has been very big on pushing the fact that the city, coming back to your point, David, is a whole of UK success story and indeed center for policy studies has written about this as well that we often overlook the fact that two-thirds of jobs in the financial center sector are outside of london london is really at the forefront internationally but there are many different aspects and also the financial inclusion aspect i, I remember presenting the paper to the commonwealth finance ministers conference on this back in the day about financial inclusion and in that respect then the focus was very much on 
so-called emerging economies. But the fact of the matter is that banking the unbanked is a big issue here in the UK. And financial exclusion is very much related to poverty, inequality, and social exclusion. So there are many different facets that we can see the city playing a bigger role domestically in. And indeed, this should be not a political issue. It should be central to making the city sort of serve the needs domestically, as well as at the same time remaining at the forefront competitively internationally. Just thinking about that competitive position now internationally again, I mean, we've been talking a lot and we've had guests on this podcast in recent weeks looking at the growth in Paris, say, of the stock markets overtaken London in terms of market capitalization. And there is this drip drip of jobs that are cropping up in other capitals around Europe and a lot of business going to New York as well. So you mentioned London is still coming out pretty well on those rankings. How optimistic are you that London can maintain its position in the coming years? The city generally, if we take it away from the politics, is about what you do, not just sort of resting on your laurels. And so it's about how you can play to those three key areas that you need to play to for an international competitive financial center. One, your inherent characteristics. People usually quote things like the rule of law, which is vitally important, um, English language, but obviously AI might challenge that. But data centers and the ecosystem is really important here. And you need to play to your strengths on those. So you do need to take action to make sure your inherent characteristics are really supportive. Second, the regulatory agenda is really very important here. The UK can be at the forefront of subtech and regtech, the whole... That's very much in play right now, right? This is all to play for. Yeah, but the interesting aspect here is that often the debate in the media can talk about regulation for regulation's sake. But regulation... We love regulation, Jared. Yeah. Well, in 2008, when we had the global financial crisis, one way to think about it is a pendulum which was at one extreme, um, self-regulation, and that had all the sorts of problems that we saw, unfortunately. The pendulum, in many respects, has swung straight very much to the other extreme. And like a pendulum, it needs to settle in the middle. Um, Because... While you need a stable and predictable prudential regulatory environment, regulation is a stepping stone to economic growth, cities' competitiveness, and also financial stability. So, like the ring fencing uh, rules brought in after the financial crisis, well, it took a while to implement, right? And now being peddled back. Is that the pendulum swinging back to where it should yeah, be? Yeah, well, in terms of the whole bank area, uh, there are a whole host of issues with banks. Um, about them being internationally competitive. The ring fencing is one aspect. It's also interest paid on their reserves at the Bank of England. A lot of the debate there is about financial stability. Maybe we need to move to a tiered system on that because the taxpayer through the Treasury indemnifies the asset purchase facility. But coming back to your point is about um, that pendulum moving back to the middle. So you don't want to penalise the banks, but you don't want to go back to where we were pre-2008, where financial instability was very much building up beneath the surface. So it is about adjusting things. So regulation does need to reflect that. Do you think, therefore, the bank needs a major overhaul? You talk about its processes and how it's analysing the markets and how it's forecasting. Do you think there needs to be a shake-up of the Bank of England? Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, But this shouldn't be seen as... a challenge to its integrity or its independence. This should be seen as part of a necessary process. What one needs, coming back to your question, is not just an attack on the Bank of England, as you called it. 
it's a fact to make sure that our institutions are fit for purpose. Jared, thank you so much. Jared Lyons. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Farage is a great salesman, maybe the best. And so, um, you know, frankly, I wouldn't mind having him on my team when I was a fund manager. <laughs> as, long, as long as he believes everything I said, but then he would have his own ideas, wouldn't he? That was the voice of Tim Steer. Uh, he once managed hundreds of millions of pounds for clients of Artemis Investment Management and whose senior reporter, Harry Wilson, approached for help in deciphering how successful these investment tips by Nigel Farage performed. So Harry set out this summer to try to understand whether the investment insights of a newsletter that Farage promotes could pay off. And the answer, it seems, not so much. See, look, you're getting it, Francine. You're getting it right. Okay, so we caught up with Harry for more of his investment journey and what he learned when he asked the question, can Nigel make you rich? So, Harry, welcome to the podcast. People cannot get enough of the story. Take us back to when it all began. It began over the summer when we started having a conversation about um, a few people on the desk have been noticing these, uh, these emails that uh, Nigel Farage had been sending out. I'm Tim Coulter. I'm the head of digital for Bloomberg's operations in London. I saw an advertisement for Fortune and Freedom, and it really made me wonder if Nigel Farage was indeed making specific investment uh, insights that, that, that we could actually track. So after what happened was about uh, November, December 2020, he, Nigel Farage joined up with this company called South Bank Research in London. And he, there he launched a podcast and newsletter called Freedom and Fortune. Hello and welcome to Fortune and Freedom with Nigel Farage. Yeah, the idea is that Fortune and Freedom will be a daily email. Uh, and in Freedom and Fortune, Nigel Farage essentially gives you his views on the world, geopolitics, economics, um, everything with, with his sort of indomitable Nigel Farage twist to it. 
because uh, they, they go together, right? Freedom and fortune, right? They go exactly. It's, it's, it's a pretty obvious allusion to, to Brexit. It does all sorts of things. You know, it's about taking back control of your money, you know, a, a phrase that many of us in Britain have heard many times before in a different context. But this time it was freedom and fortune to go and find your fortune in the financial markets. So w- what we first started thinking about was, well, is there any kind of way of tracking his advice here? And when you go onto the, the, the free site, the Freedom of Fortune thing, there are there a couple of stock recommendations, but there wasn't really much to get our teeth into, um, which is when I started having a closer look at it. And actually, it turned out there was a subscriber newsletter called UK Independent Wealth, which was created by Nigel Farage, and which has a stock portfolio, which was put together by a former UBS banker based in uh, Buenos Aires called Rob Mastrand. And that's what we started tracking. Um, we're, we're looking at creating this portfolio that we're going to try to match the performance of this uh, suggested portfolio from uh, South Bank. Yeah, so I mean, I, th- I think the idea here is that we, we just want to try... So a lot of people won't even know that actually Nigel Farage, you know, provides investment advice. And so you built a portfolio, imaginary portfolio of £100,000. How did it do? It didn't do terribly well, so uh, we, we we took a sort of a, a few runs at how to track this por- this portfolio. First thing to say, by the way, Nigel Farage vehemently denies that he provides advice. Uh, that's the one thing we got when we spoke to him. Very important legal point, that right? Very <laughs> important legal point that he d- he does not legally provide advice. These are he promotes this uh, this service. But um, getting back to the performance, so we we looked at a few ways to track it. Now I went and spoke to a former fund manager, Tim Steer, who used to manage manage hundreds of millions of pounds at uh, Artemis Investment Management. And uh, he gave us some advice on, on how to do this. Okay. Um, uh, and that runs for whatever it runs for until the second one comes in. Yeah. The second one comes in, you liquidate, so you liquidate portfolio. So you've now got 110,000. Yeah. You put 55,000. So we looked at a, essentially a rebalancing portfolio. So what you do is you look at the, the stock advice, you take the, the recommendations as they come, and then you just rebalance the portfolio each time a, a new recommendation is made. And that, Tim told us, was the best way of tracking the performance. So putting all this into the, the, the Bloomberg terminal, we came up with the results, and it came out basically that you have about a, you lost about 8% uh, or £8,000 of your starting 100000 over the last roughly two years. And that compares pretty poorly with just putting your money into an index tracker where you'd have got something like a, well, you'd have gained about 17, 18%. So a difference in performance of roughly about £25,000. I mean, I love this, Harry. It's so Bloomberg that we've dived into the data here and tracked it. I mean, do you think it's too much to say we can draw some parallels here to the performance of Britain, who took Farage's advice. Oh, by the way, our, our very own Allegra Stratton told me it rhymes with garage, so it's Farage. <laughs> Is it? For us. So I've been pronouncing it wrong all debate. these years. We've been pronouncing it wrong all these years. So, um, Mr. Farage um, uh, recommended Britain leave the EU, and the GDP hasn't picked up in the same way post-pandemic, has it, since, compared to the rest of the world? So we've sort of underperformed the global benchmarks. Do you think there's some sort of synergy here with his investment advice. I, I, th- I think probably the one thing you might take out of this, and again, this was something that came through to me from talking to to Tim Steer, the, our, uh, our fund management expert, was his point on this, this portfolio is that the problem is that you don't have any world equities in it. So you've, you've got a, a pure selection pretty much, apart from one ETF, uh, a Brazilian uh, ETF, you've essentially got a concentrated position in the UK. But the key thing that's wrong with the portfolio, in my view, is that 
it's recommending you buy UK assets. Mm. And there's been a big move in the last 10 years, sadly, uh, for investors um, generally to move away from owning UK assets in their portfolios and their pension funds to owning global assets in their portfolios. And the UK markets just haven't done particularly well in recent years uh, for a variety of reasons, Brexit being one of them, but uh, there, there are others. And um, that means that you, you haven't had, for instance, the outperformance in US tech stocks, uh, which is actually, I should say, one area where they were particularly gloomy uh, on these, the, the podcasts I was listening to, the Nigel Farage uh, podcast. But I think the big sharp downward movements reflect one thing. We've been saying since we launched Fortune and Freedom, don't touch the tech sector. All right, don't go near it. It's hugely overvalued. Each year that goes by, it gets more and more bubbly. Yes, of course, there are some fantastic tech companies. So Nigel doesn't like, he doesn't like foreign stocks either. Well, he certainly doesn't like US tech stocks. He was very down on those um, in, in the many, many podcasts uh, and newsletters that I, that I listened to and read. The Nasdaq's grossly overvalued. And I do see these setbacks as something of a validation for that, because when things are trading at multiples uh, that are almost beyond comprehension, you know, he's certainly not a uh, someone who's particularly totally against tech. I mean, he talks quite a lot about uh, blockchain and bitcoins and uh, cryptocurrencies, and there's there's an awful lot of uh, when you sign up to this service, you don't just get uh, your freedom of fortune. You start getting all sorts of other suggestions about things you might invest in, and and crypto is a very heavily plugged uh, market. So you went back, Harry, for round two. Yeah. So, so you know, the, we weren't just looking at this, I guess, as just how the portfolio did. There's, there's all sorts of kind of weird and wonderful things you start getting put in front of you when you when you sign up to this thing. So one of the areas, it seems so so nuts now, but basically they were suggesting a thing called a cash surge calculator, and we were told that this is such a secret investment that the guy who designed it has put it onto a USB stick and put it in a vault buried underneath the uh, Nevada desert, such as the, 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 the secrecy and, and, uh, and the value of, of this, this algorithm. And um, what it turned out was it, essentially it's basically every couple of weeks, Americans put invest into their 401k pans. And the idea is you essentially invest in those cash windows. So when Americans invest in their 401ks, you put your money into the stock market and hey, presto, you'll get sort of lifted by this this brief inflow of, of, of funds and that will produce these amazing returns for you. And it's presented as this is, you know, the most amazing thing ever. No one's ever thought of this. Well, unfortunately, when, when we spent, went and found some academics who tracked this, they... they the idea to them that this was something so secret that it had to be buried on Nevada, Nevada desert was frankly uh, ridiculous. I mean, did we have to dispatch a reporter to Nevada to try and find this thing? Uh, not, not as yet. Uh, if, if, if you're offering me a flight to Nevada... Uh, <laughs> Harry is taking that flight. <laughs> I'll take that flight. I, I mean, have we spoken to Mr. Farage, or should we call him Nigel? Did you manage to get a hold of him to defend his position? So... Uh, you know, as, as always, we, we went out for comment. Uh, we tried for various ways and eventually got him on the telephone. Uh, it was a fairly brief conversation, I think roughly about a minute. Um, I think the, the question that seemed to finish it off was uh, when, I, when I asked if he was actually following his own advice. At that point, the uh, connection broke for whatever reason. And uh, yes, that was that, that's all I managed to get. But as I said, uh, the one thing he was very insistent on is that he does not provide advice. Yeah, I, I, I say garage. So is that a problem? <laughs> and I know how it pronounces his name. 
Dave. <laughs> I mean, there we go. Garage. I say garage. Garage. I know. That's garage. my um, uh, regional British <laughs> accent like, shining through. Harry, thank you so much. Great story. No worries. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's In the City. We will be back next week. But in the meantime, if you like our show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review and subscribe. This episode was hosted by me, David Merritt. And me, Francine Lacqua. It was produced by Summer Sardi. Editing and sound design by Blake Maples. And special thanks to Gerard Lyons, Harry Wilson and, all together now, Nigel Farage. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.